Chapter Thirteen of Abandoned by William Clark Russell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Francis. Abandoned by William Clark Russell. Chapter Thirteen at Ramsgate. She stood so close that he could see the stars of the moonlight in her eyes. Her face was pale as marble in that sheen. She was dressed in dark clothes that expressed her figure, and her sailor hat was of coloured straw. She gave him no more heed than she bestowed on the people who passed. The lovely picture of the rising moon and its rippling reflection, and the black brig sulkily stemming and panting to the right of the flowing radiance in the sea, appeared to have fascinated her. A sensation of tightness was about his heart, and its pulse throbbed. Half strangled. His throat grew dry as in fever, and the sudden passion of his spirit ran a momentary paralysis through him, and he stood as one seized with tetanus after taking poison. She was before him even as he had viewed her spiritually from his fissure in the dell, pallid in the star white light that clothed her. Who is the artist that can throw such a passage of life upon the mental gaze of his reader? without shrinking from the dread of the derision that attends exaggeration. She passed on without noticing him, for this was a figure to court the male eye, and she was used to being stared at. He watched, and then followed her. That old mole-in-the-earth Goodhart, was his prophecy to be fulfilled? Was the old magic to exert the old spell now that she was there, stately in form, unchanged, unless the moon lied? by so much as a single stroke of the pencil of time. She stopped again to look at the sea, and he halted and turned his back, again followed when she moved, and so kept her in sight, down Augusta Road into the Bellevue Road, where she vanished. But he had marked the house she entered, and presently passed it, and read the number. It was a road mainly of poor lodging-houses. He returned to the esplanade, and sat down to think. His heart had cooled. Memory had flooded and chilled him as the night with its cold moisture descends upon the sea. Moonlight makes all things beautiful. Says Wordsworth, The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. But it had not adorned the beauty of Lucretia by throwing over her its concealing ethereal veil of silver. In eight years she had not physically changed. He was sure of that. If materially she had not altered, why should he expect or hope that she had morally altered? What right had he to believe that her passionless nature was not still as frosty as it was eight years ago, with its ice-bleak presence of a form of chastity that was a distemper of mind? And if this was true, would it not be equally true to predict that the revelation of his identity, the confession of his individuality as Francis Reynolds, would provoke precisely the same disgust? induce exactly the same horror and revulsion which had attended her marriage and made of her a moral phenomenon? This was a consideration that brought his brows together, and his hand tightened upon his stick. For he knew himself well enough to understand that his self-respect as a man, that the honor in which it is the duty of every man to hold his own character, seeing that to the degree of honor a man does himself is the dignity of his manhood lifted, must fall irretrievably into ruin, if he again courted and gained the aversion which had dispatched her to her bedroom from the church, and filled his arms with the killing mockery of a phantom. He resolved to pursue a course, and walked to the hotel.
He entered the reading room and seated himself at a desk at a table and wrote to Mr. Wembley Jones. I am here and by accident have discovered that the Mrs. Reynolds whom you were good enough to inquire about is lodging at 28 Bellevue Road in this town. Will you kindly send her the enclosed draft for 150 pounds stating the facts as I related them to you and oblige, etc.? He signed the name of John Goodhart. He mused a bit after writing and stamping his letter. Suppose, he thought, on receipt of this money, Lucretia leaves Ramsgate? I may be unable to trace her again. And he plausibly represented to himself that his desire to hold her in view was because she was obviously poor and apparently alone and might want a friend. The judgment is always willing to be betrayed by one's tastes rather than be controlled by one's interests. He entered the hall and posted the letter. The morning, said a gentleman, who next day was seated at breakfast at the same table with Reynolds, is always the pleasantest part of the seaside in June, when fine. The dip, then the breakfast, then the pipe. Where does tobacco discharge so delicate a richness, so nutty an aroma as by the sea? The fresh fried sole for breakfast yields a sweetness and flavor it never delivers inland. There is a savoriness by the sea, in the incense sent up by the dish of eggs and bacon which must often make the gods lament their divinity as a form of being which requires neither palate nor stomach. This rhapsodist, who was rather deaf, and who had told Reynolds that he was a stockbroker with a great taste for literature, in which he had sought eminence without achieving it, this man who had informed Reynolds in the smoking-room that he had read Burton's Anatomy fourteen times, that he possessed the first folio edition of Beaumont and Fletcher, and that he had refused six hundred pounds for a collection of autographs from Wycliffe to the Prince Consort, might have added to his list of the engaging pleasures of the seaside on a fine June morning, the breakfasting at an open window which frames a broad plain of water sparkling with sun-stars, over whose surface firm ruled against the sky, glide shapes of steamer and sailing ships, the solemn mail-boat, stately in sentiency of human life, of precious freight, of beautiful enginery, of elegance in mould of whole, the cargo-tramp that, perceptive of the undermanned lookout aboard her, strains the eyes of her hawse-pipes at the sea from her rearing bows, that coaster of the coast, the barge, discolouring the water under her with dyes of red mainsail and white topsail. Pleasant also is it to breakfast in the fanning of the fresh salt air, to the stealthy seething of waters upon the sands and rocks, to the thin, undistracting orchestra composed of the town band afar, piano organs muffled round the corner, blackened minstrels upon the beach, human voices calling or singing, the vibration of bells, the cries of the hawker, faint as though in partial vacuo, blending and contained within that frame of open window, with the hollow dome on high, full of blue air and moving clouds. Before and during breakfast, Reynolds had kept a lookout for his wife. He was consumed with the desire to behold her by daylight. One road to the town, from the place where she lived, would carry her past the north and east windows of the hotel. How did she occupy the day? Did she teach? And if so, at a school, or did she receive pupils? After breakfast, he went for a walk. His heart prompted his legs, and he made for the arbor by way of Augusta Road, and the road in which Lucretia lodged. He looked at the house as he slowly passed. A somewhat dingy, 
poorly draped, fifth-rate lodging house, whose character was not improved by the yells of a man gutting fish at a barrow opposite the door, with a couple of cats rubbing themselves against his fear-not trousers, and by another fellow with a basket on his arm, trying to burst through the first man's shouts of, "'Beautiful fresh souls!' by bawling in ear-splitting notes, "'Oh, the beautiful fresh Pegwell Bay shrimps!' Lucretia was not to be seen. He walked on, lost in thought about her, and passed through the pier gates into a scene that was as familiar to him then as it had been a quarter of a century before. It was a richly colored picture of English longshore life. The breeze filled it with motion. In places it was a dance of prisms. Every flag rippled and waved seawards. The wherries swayed upon the pulsation of the waters. Shadows like that of gigantic fingers ran through the white heights of hoisted canvas. Marble-like forms of seagulls hovered on tremorless wings between the pierheads, where the surface of the brine glanced and frolicked with the splendor of a herring shoal. Reynolds, pensive with memories of boyhood, watched a tug head slowly out, slapping her wake of foam at the mud barge she towed. A cluster of large pleasure boats called yachts lay at the pier steps, and their captains were competing for fares in voices which could be heard half a mile off. Some way this side lay the lifeboat reposing peacefully at her buoy, a noble, a significant symbol of the life of the sea to the sailor. One of those yacht-masters on the pier was exhorting the public to step on board his swift and lovely ship and sail to the Goodwin Sands, where they would land to play at cricket, an incident of travel to boast of on their return home. And hard by was the lifeboat, so fraught with memories of those same deadly Goodwins that you might almost fancy, if you pressed your ear against one of her thwarts, whispers of tragedies, breathings such as fabrics made sentient by their burden and business of humanity converse with, would penetrate to your consciousness and group upon your spiritual retina many shocking, many wild, many ghastly visions. What sailor but knows then? The dead bodies lashed in the lee mizzen rigging, Men who had drowned in the freezing foam when the mast went, watched by a shivering crowd of wretches in the foretop. The saloon of the stranded liner with the dead bodies of nuns and others floating about. The streaming, reddening flare that lights up the sea for miles and flings upon the flying raven wings of the storm a low, sullen radiance, in which the rocket of the lightship flashes and fades. "'Would you like to go for an hour's row, sir? Beautiful day for a sail. Some nice fishing to be had.' "'Very fine, Poughton. Codlin's long as my arm,' said an elderly man, coming up to Reynolds. His face was like the inside of a crumpet, with its recollections of smallpox, and though the dog days were not far off, he wore a yellow sou'wester and lounged in breeches as heavy as winter blankets. "'Aren't you Joe Cooper?' said Reynolds. "'Yes.' "'I remember you twenty-five years ago. Have you been here ever since?' "'Aye, ever since I was born.' "'Sowed father. Sowed his father. Shall I get the board ready, sir?' "'How's old John Goldsmith?' "'Old John? Him as ad the pilot? Why, he comes down here three years ago, just where we're a-standin', and arter looking at his pilot, he says, "'Joe,' he says, says he, "'the old Bart lies safe.' "'Aye, safe enough,' says I. "'I feels a bit tired,' says he, in a soft way. "'I think I'll go and lie down.' Loy down he did, and he's still a loyan. William, he bawled, got any bait in that there can? 
Reynolds gave him two shillings and walked away. He had fished so much in his day that he wanted no more of that sport. He went on the pier, but all the time that he walked his eyes hunted for a sight of Lucretia. But throughout that day he saw nothing of her, though he was studiously much about. On the sands, on the west pier and west cliff, and at ten o'clock that night, when he sat in the smoking-room conversing with a stockbroker and one or two others, he had not seen her. Next morning he received a letter from Mr. Wembley Jones, acknowledging the receipt of his cheque for one hundred and fifty pounds, and informing him that he had sent the money to Mrs. Reynolds at the address given by Mr. Goodhart, together with the particulars which he had been asked to communicate. He added that he did not doubt that Mrs. Reynolds would do herself the pleasure to call upon Mr. Goodhart, to personally thank him for his kindness. This was naturally Reynolds' expectation, but he did not suppose that she would call in the morning. On his return, however, to the hotel to lunch, a card was given to him, and the porter said that a lady had called to see him, and that she would come again at half-past four. The card bore the engraved name of Mrs. Reynolds, and she had written her address in the corner. He had flattered himself that he had schooled his face, and drilled his spirit into qualifying him for such a meeting, as to betray on his side no more than if indeed he was veritably the man he personated. But as he walked to the luncheon-table with his wife's card in his hand, he was conscious of a perturbation, a hurry and tumult of mind, a collision and recoil of sensations which occurred him it was vastly well, truly, that he had not met his wife without this advice of her coming. Indeed, he could scarcely swallow the meal he ordered, and when his acquaintance, the literary stockbroker, asked from an adjacent table if he would join him in a shilling trip in one of the pleasure-boats that afternoon, the answer he received was so abrupt, in a person whose demeanor was uniformly mild, somewhat melancholy, but pleasantly flavored with geniality, that the stockbroker thought that Mr. Goodhart must be feeling ill, and looked at him for a little while in friendly inquiry. Reynolds, conceiving that the ordeal of the first meeting with his wife would lose intention if it were unwitnessed, asked for a private room in which to receive his visitor, and at half-past four he was pacing its carpet. Precisely at the time named in the message, the knuckles of a waiter drummed on the door, which was flung wide open, and, Mrs. Reynolds, sir, was announced in a strong German accent. Reynolds stood with his back to the light, and bowed low with a tranquillity that would have reassured any secret spectator who had been his well-wisher. Had the moon the night before last told a flattering tale? Had she deceived him with her cold pencils of white brightness? It is a fact that eight years had robbed Lucretia of nothing, and had added something. As the red rose of June is to the same red rose of July, was Lucretia of the altar in St. Stephen's Church to the Mrs. Reynolds, who sank her head in a queenly movement to Mr. Goodhart. Hers, indeed, had been some trial of poverty, not severe, but no discipline of maternity, no death of babe, nor anxiety of always ailing child, no kitchen murmurous with grievances and the poor pay of a shipmaster as a thread for the pearls of the faith of Hymen. She was richer in color, fuller and rounder in figure than when they had parted, but one characteristic time had wrought no change in, and this was the inherent quality of coldness in the residual expression of her face, which, had she been ugly, would have ascended to the degree of a viral austerity. But though her beauty held this element in solution, it was present and visible as the label of her nature. And Reynolds, at a glance, saw that if Lucretia had not lost an external charm as a woman, 
neither had anything come on the spiritual side to help her as a woman. Her sailor's hat suited her, and her dress fitted her. Her left hand was gloved. He could not know at once if she wore his ring. She put her right hand behind her in search of her pocket, and said, with calmness, a little colored with the glow of gratitude, I have the pleasure of addressing Mr. Goodhart. Again he bowed and begged her to sit. There was clearly nothing in the sound of his voice that struck her. Her demeanor proved this. It was a self-possession of a lady in the presence of a stranger. I received this morning this letter, she said, producing it, from my father's solicitor, Mr. Wembley Jones. He enclosed your check for one hundred and fifty pounds, for which I do not know how to express my gratitude to you. The story you told him is naturally of the deepest interest to me, and I shall feel greatly obliged if you can add anything to what Mr. Wembley Jones writes. I fear I can add nothing, said Reynolds, in a low but steady voice. It was my duty as a man and a sailor to carry out this poor shipwrecked fellow's wishes. It has given me no trouble. It has been a pleasure. I could enter into the feelings that governed him as he wrote. I wish I had preserved his letter. So far, absolutely nothing in his voice, nor in his aspect to invite her regard outside the interest of the subject she had called about. You may have been told, she said, that Captain Reynolds was my husband. Oh, yes. Do you believe he is dead? Mr. Wembley Jones does not seem to consider your discovery of his letter a proof of his death. He wrote in words such as only a man who is convinced that his death is at hand would use. And yet that is no proof. He might have been taken off the island. Would not you have heard from him? She was silent whilst she looked at the letter she held, and he watched her. Can you tell me when his letter was dated? she asked. To the best of my recollection, he answered, it was dated January 1892. Six years ago, she exclaimed, and the shadow of thought was on her face as her large, dark eyes fastened themselves on the carpet. She looked up and exclaimed, There has not been a line of reference to the loss of his ship in the papers. The uncertainty has been very hard to bear, but time reconciles us to much. The waiter entered with a tea tray. Lucretia took off her gloves, and Reynolds saw his wedding ring. "'May I give you a cup, Mr. Goodhart?' said she. The same graceful posture at table, the same fine motions of arm, like the swaying of stately branches in summer winds, the same flower-like curve of neck, the same glow of hair and brilliancy of teeth. The magic was there, and the spell was working, but in a way. "'Shall I call you Captain Goodhart?' "'No, madam.' I have given up the sea. You retired as captain? I am Mr. John Goodhart. In the merchant service we are not entitled to be called captains. We are master mariners. Will you tell me about that island? I will tell you what I saw, and what my chief officer reported. When he used the words chief officer, she looked at him intently, under slightly knitted brows, as though something in the tone in which he pronounced the words affected her. But the expression vanished like the shadow of a cloud crossing a brook, and she listened with single-hearted attention. The island is called Santo Cristo. It is about a mile long, and not a mile broad. It rears a green hill in the middle, out of which, halfway down, spout two cascades. Its foreshore is of white coral sand. It's an island of which something could be made were it situated on a lake on an estate. Did the officer see no signs of Captain Reynolds? None. 
If he died on the island, she did not like to continue. Nature is kind, said Reynolds, calmly and gravely, and in six years she would not only have found him a tomb, but ornamented his resting place with a memorial, a bush, a little growth of flowers. It is shocking to me to think of his dying on that island. Was he alone, do you think? I should say so. Few ships sight that bit of land. Had we not been blown out of our course, we should not have come within fifty miles of it. Then again, the mere circumstance of his letter about you, lying nailed on top of a chest in a cave for nearly six years, proves that the island was unvisited. Anybody who landed and explored the island would find the cave and take the letter. He paused and added, Have you any children? No, she answered. With an expression of face which he readily translated into an emotion of tingling self-consciousness, but it never could have been so construed by a stranger. How did you find out where I lived, Mr. Goodhart? It was necessary to fib. He was acting a part. The actor must tell lies off the stage as well as on. He was Goodhart to this spectator, and he must play up to the part, just as though he was King Lear or Joseph Surface, watched by rows and tears. I saw you on the esplanade the other evening, and ascertained your name, which induced me to inquire after your address, in the conviction that, if I was mistaken, a plain explanation of the facts would be accepted by you as my apology. Never was falsehood nearer the truth, nor more satisfying. He saw that she was not displeased by the initial curiosity the incident implied. He had manifestly been attracted by her appearance, had asked who she was, had been surprised on hearing her name, sought her address, and taken his chance of her proving the woman he wanted. She began to put on her gloves. "'How do you think,' she asked, "'did my poor, unfortunate husband contrive to clothe and feed himself on that wretched, lonely island?' Reynolds gravely shook his head and slightly shrugged his shoulders, as though he should say, "'How can I tell?' She rose. "'Is Mrs. Goodhart with you?' she asked, with a smile that was easily interpreted, into meaning that, if Mrs. Goodhart is here, I will formally call upon her. Mrs. Goodhart has been lying in her grave in Sydney since 1878, answered Reynolds. She bowed her head in apology for asking the question. I wish you to believe, Mr. Goodhart, that I am deeply obliged to you for your kindness. Nothing could have given me more pleasure. I trust this may not be our only meeting. Are you making any stay here? I like the place, and shall linger until I weary of it. And you, Mrs. Reynolds? Oh, I'm a fixture, I'm afraid. My mornings and afternoons are occupied. One must live, Mr. Goodhart. Woman's opportunities are fearfully limited. If I had been born a man, I should not teach for a living. This money is a great godsend. She looked away to the window, and her fine eyes wore the softened glow which tells of abstraction. But she was back again in a second. So many, many thanks for your kindness. She extended her hand. He clasped, but released it swiftly, then opened the door and attended her as far as a corridor that led to the hall, bowed, and returned to sit down and think. It will seem incredible that Lucretia should not have recognized her husband. Put it thus, for six or seven years you have thought of a man as dead. The conviction of his death is a custom, and custom lies upon us like a weight, heavy as frost, and deep almost as life. Suppose this man to reappear, absolutely transformed in aspect, 
Would you, without information, accept him as the person you know is dead? You might witness features physiological and moral to suggest resemblance, but this resemblance would be accident and not revelation. And short of revelation, you are bound by the custom of your thought to believe the person you knew dead, and the same man, when he presents himself, another. How stood the thing with this couple? In the first place, it had been a sailor's courtship. She had not seen half as much of him in the wooing time as she would have seen had he filled a short appointment. Next, she had not been a wife to him. She could not found herself on such knowledge as would have been hers had they lived together. She had abandoned him on her wedding day, and believed him dead after eight years, during which time she had not heard of him or set eyes on him, and memory now was holding only the image of him as he figured whilst he courted her, a fugitive figure thanks to his calling. Here he was now as Goodhart, not as Reynolds. So changed in face, he had started and not known himself, when for the first time after twenty months he had looked at himself in a looking-glass in a cabin in the Chanticleer. The sight of his left eye was so impaired that he could barely see with it. The orb was lusterless and charged the face with a new expression. He used spectacles for reading and pince-nez for surveying distant objects. His left eyebrow and side of the head were warped by the healing of the wound, and this, combined with the blow which had wrecked one side of the mouth, completed a metamorphosis, of which other features were the white hair and gray beard and mustache, a singular modification in his normal enunciation, owing to the damage done to the mouth, a shadow of melancholy that had never before been visible, that is, in Lucretia's time. It was inconceivable that the wife believing the man dead, should translate this unfamiliar figure of Mr. John Goodhart into her husband, Frank Reynolds. She had not done so, and when Reynolds returned to the private sitting-room, whose atmosphere still cherished the memory and fragrance of her presence, he felt that he was as dead to her as though he occupied the grave he had dug for his friend. This had been a meeting that had imposed a desperate restraint on him, and now that the pressure was removed, his spirits and feelings swelled into turbulency, and he paced the room deeply agitated. As his passions cooled, he asked himself, what should he do? Nothing was more certain than that his wife, unchanged by time, unsoftened by experiences, was still that same Lucretia of the altar, who had repulsed him after she had vowed before God to love, honor, and obey him. But he loved her, he desired her. The secret of his heart was not to be concealed from his understanding. He thought her a nobler-looking, a more beautiful woman now than when he had first met and fallen in love with her. What depth of spirituality in those dark eyes! How sudden, like the play of light, was the sweetness of her smile! How tranquil her brow, as virginal to his, her husband's eyes, as an angel's, who in this world was a little child! How resolved the expression of her bright lips! How excellent in this ignoble world of carnal sensation whether a finger or nose or eye, that spirit of chastity which had held her from him, he must woo and try to win her as good heart. But though in his wife's unchanged nature he thought he saw the necessity for this, it was a prospect his vanity by no means relished. Good God! What would be his feelings to find himself accepted as good heart when he had been spurned as Reynolds? To find himself accepted as another man by the wife who would have none of the real man? It was enough to make him feel jealous of himself as Goodhart. 
Next afternoon, at about five o'clock, Reynolds was seated with his acquaintance, the stockbroker, on a bench on the east cliff. A very flowery young lady of about thirty-eight passed. She was powdered and vermilioned under a white veil to the aspect of about twenty. Eyes doctored by pigments into an expression of licorice languor, dangerous to old and middle-aged men, round in hip, plump and clean in waist, ripe in bust. Ha! exclaimed the stockbroker, fetching a sigh and following the gaudy nymph with his eyes, and the rhapsodist burst out. How beautiful and mysterious is that creature, woman! Think of the loveliness of her shape, its marvelous adaptability to the purposes for which it is intended, her power of germinating, the rapture she can excite, the inspiration she can fire the imagination with, the mighty or the mean actions she can induce the performance of. Think of her, too, as incarnating that holy mundane trinity, wife, mother, sister. Mr. Goodhart, of all God's miracles, woman is the greatest. And what is your opinion of man? asked Reynolds, a little dryly. I have the highest opinion of man in the aggregate, but the individual man does not always recommend himself to me. He does not always pay his bills. He tells lies. He runs away with your wife. With the greatest of all miracles? Yes, he'll even go so far as that. But the aggregate man, look at that noble steamer yonder. Look at that pier down there. Feel the rumble of the train passing through the tunnel cut in the solid chalk on which we are seated. It's not man's failures that should dismay us. It is his achievements that should astonish and stimulate us. He comes into the world with five senses only. In most cases, these senses are defective. His knowledge is limited to his capacity of perceiving by these senses, and their doubtful reports are to be construed by that fallible organ, the brain. Thus slenderly, and indeed almost impotently equipped, the man you ask me my opinion of points to the noble bridge that spans the river, to the locomotive shrieking into the tunnel, to the steamship tearing with iron tooth through the mad heart of the living gale, to the message that passes to the Antipodes in the twinkling of a star. Think of these products of five senses only, two or three of them abortive, depending in their poor efforts to report aright on the interpretation of that misleading condition of life, the human reason. I say that, on the terms of his existence, man's achievements are godlike. Not bad for a stockbroker, thought Reynolds, who sincerely agreed with the rhapsodist. Just then, Lucretia turned the corner of the esplanade. As she approached, Reynolds stood up and raised his cap. The stockbroker, after a glance at this further illustration of the greatest miracle, walked off. They saluted each other. They agreed that it was a fine evening. I should like to hear more of... What's the name of the island? she said. Santo Cristo. Won't you sit? She took the place vacated by the rhapsodist. She was slightly flushed. It was not the heat. She was fresh from teaching, and all the while she had walked from the house, she was secretly resenting the manner in which her two pupils' mamma had expressed her regret that Lillian's handwriting should show no signs of improvement, and that Violet's spelling should continue wretched. As if I had had any share in giving those creatures their brains, thought the proud and passionless Lucretia, as she left the house, which was in Wellington Crescent. I don't think that I could add a sentence to the description I gave you yesterday said Reynolds. It's just a poor little uninhabited island. Nothing, I should suppose, could live upon it but a man or a seabird.
If my husband had been taken off by a ship, should not I have heard? Undoubtedly, either through the owners of his ship or from himself. What do you really think? she asked, fastening her full dark eyes upon him. You are reconciled to the idea of his death? His ship was never accounted for after she sailed, and I am forced to believe that he is dead. Since you are reconciled, I should hold to that view if I were you. Had you been married long before he sailed? No, she answered, slightly contracting her brow as she looked at the French coast, which was lifted in a delicate orange mirage and hovered like a cloud over the sea line. Do you like Ramsgate? he asked. Yes, but not the reason that keeps me in it. There is nothing that worries the nerves so much as teaching stupid children, whose mothers think them clever and capable of rapid progress. He looked at her with a quiet face, when again she gave him a steady view of her profile, which was the aspect of her beauty he most admired, whilst she gazed at the French coast. You have friends here, of course. None. I have not been here long enough to form acquaintances. Besides, teaching makes one unsociable. I used to think schoolmasters disagreeable company, because they bring with them the peremptory, domineering, correcting ways they employ in the schoolroom. I am afraid, if I went into society, people would find me objectionable for the same reason, which, indeed, I can't help, for one contracts bad habits insensibly in this world of all sorts of misdemeanors. She rose. Good afternoon, Mr. Goodhart. I'm sorry you should be in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. I am going to my lodgings to drink a cup of tea, said she with a smile. Will you do me the pleasure to drink tea with me at the hotel? I am a stranger here, and I assure you your society is a singular privilege, which you will not allow me to lose for a cup of tea? I shall be very pleased, she answered without hesitation. I'm sure your thoughtful kindness, the trouble you have taken in carrying out my husband's wishes, make me very glad indeed to meet you. Naturally. As a lady whose income was very limited indeed, and who was obliged to teach in order to live, she was greatly touched by the kindness of the man who had taken the trouble to find her out, that he might hand her the handsome and welcome sum of one hundred and fifty pounds, her husband's farewell gift. They walked slowly to the hotel. End chapter 13